0: This is Monday Morning QB, October 5th, 2020. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, grand jury manipulation and the shooting of Breonna Taylor. The Electoral College, another form of racial voter suppression. A moral Monday march protesting the sins of the Senate. And supporters of Donald Trump are all in when it comes to his racism. All that and more Stay with us. What we know about President Trump's health has remained largely unchanged since yesterday. We know his blood oxygen level dropped twice in recent days and that he has received three treatments typically reserved for moderate to severe coronavirus cases. But his doctors say he is improving and could be discharged as early as today. Maybe most importantly, we still don't know the political ramifications of Trump's illness. Former Vice President Joe Biden continues to lead Trump in national and swing state polling. A New York Times Siena poll published before Trump's positive test found Biden up seven and five points in Pennsylvania and Florida, respectively. Two states crucial to Trump's re-election. But after what many considered a widespread polling failure in 2016, one that didn't predict Trump's significant electoral college victory, can we trust polls to be accurate in this election cycle? In short, yes. To learn why,
1: we go to reporter Chris Banger drowns. The polling world faced something of a crisis in the aftermath of the 2016 election, as media and voters lambasted the industry for failing to predict Trump's Electoral College victory. The frustration is understandable, given how important polling is to our democracy. They
2: give us a lot more information about what's going on in our democracy. So um, elections themselves are... rather blunt instruments uh, in terms of conveying information about what the public thinks. There are lots of elections in the United States. You know, we have an electoral college, and so we vote on president state by state. There's the Senate. There's the House. There's all these state legislative and gubernatorial races. And so polling helps us to uncover without guessing where it is that we have competition,
1: That's Joshua Dick, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center for Public Opinion at UMass Lowell. While the frustration towards pollsters like Joshua was widespread after 2016, the polling error itself was fairly narrow. Joshua's last 2016 poll in New Hampshire correctly identified a narrowing lead for Clinton, predicting a tie in a state that she eventually won by less than a percentage point. That's pretty accurate.
2: And if you looked at the national polls, the national polling average correctly predicted the margin of the popular vote. And so what you had was not a widespread polling failure.
1: So if Joshua's New Hampshire polling was accurate, and if national polling averages correctly predicted Clinton's popular vote advantage, what went wrong? We could eliminate some explanations right off the bat. One of the more popular theories to explain 2016 polling failures is that a chunk of Trump voters, called shy Trump voters, didn't want to tell pollsters they supported a controversial candidate for fear of social repercussions. The evidence doesn't support this idea. For one, Trump voters in New Hampshire must not have been shy, given Joshua's accurate polling in the state and national tests by Politico and Morning Consult showed no difference in polling results between live phone interviews and online polls, indicating that social fears about revealing support for candidate Trump were negligible. Another possible explanation is a late swing by undecided voters for Trump.
2: There was sort of this sense in New Hampshire that we saw the race shift, like we had had Clinton plus six in early October, and then it was tied at the end. And so we, we saw the move happen, and yet we didn't see that in the polling um, that other folks were doing in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and in Pennsylvania.
1: So a late swing did happen, but Joshua's New Hampshire polling captured it. Why didn't polls in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin do the same? Part of the problem has to do with the volume of polling in states. A late swing is impossible to measure if polling doesn't continue late into the election cycle.
2: That dynamic that we saw happen in New Hampshire, which is that, um, you know, Republicans who, who had said that they were undecided are voting for third party candidates and moved really in the last week of the campaign and said, no, actually, I'm going to vote for Trump that that didn't happen until very late in Wisconsin. And that, that dynamic that happened in 2016 was just highly unusual. And so if you weren't in the field, like right at the end, you didn't catch that trend.
1: But a late surge, particularly in those three Rust Belt states, isn't sufficient to explain the admittedly narrow 2016 polling failure. The big culprit in 2016 has to do with what pollsters call the weighting of samples. If, for example, a sample in a poll contains 45% women and 55% men in a state with a roughly even gender distribution, then a pollster should increase the weight of responses from women in the sample so that it matches the population distribution. In 2016, many polls failed to wait for education, which in the last two election cycles was much more indicative of political opinion than it had been in previous cycles. Non-college-educated whites disproportionately voted for Trump, while college-educated white voters swung for Clinton. Because Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan have a disproportionate number of non-college-educated white voters, failing to wait for education meant pollsters missed badly this failure to wait is only compounded by the fact that poll respondents already tend to be more educated than the broader population. All
2: the most credible pollsters were waiting by education, and and most of those pollsters were correct in their assessments of the race. In
1: 2020, Joshua Dick says the American Association for Public Opinion Research is urging pollsters to wait by education.
2: We're also seeing fewer sort of um, shooting from the hip people who are doing forecasts. Nate Silver was one of the people who was saying in 2016 that Trump still had about a one in four chance of being president based on what he was saying. And there were several other forecasters who were giving Clinton a 99 percent
1: chance Okay, so there's less shooting from the hip and more waiting by education, which already makes 2020 election polling more dependable than 2016 polling. But what of the 2016 late surge? Could another difficult-to-predict swing happen in the 2020 election cycle? Fear not. Joshua Dick's polling in New Hampshire, mirroring other state and national polls, finds a much smaller group of undecided and third-party voters in 2020 than existed in 2016. So this is a fundamentally
2: different electorate. It's an electorate who has decided, who is voting basically on a referendum on an incumbent who they have pretty firm opinions about. And so I would say that in 2016, people were making their minds up about Trump. They were like, wow, this is a political candidate we haven't seen before. He's bombastic. He doesn't act like a political candidate. This could go either really good or really bad. I'm not sure I like him. But in 2020, it's 4% of the electorate that is movable in late September, early October.
1: At least in New Hampshire, it appears nearly all of the late swing of undecideds and third party, particularly libertarian voters, went to Trump.
2: There was a lot of room for Trump to pull those third party libertarian voters out and over to uh, his side, which is precisely what he did. You know, Clinton's number stayed flat in 2016 from from our first to our second poll later in October in 2016. And Trump. Hold voters from, from the Libertarian candidate and from undecided. So I, I think that the dynamics of this race are different. I just don't think there are voters there for, for Trump to persuade. Um, and though so I think that Biden has had a lead for a really long time, and I don't suspect that
1: it is going to go anywhere. Joshua Dick, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the Center for Public Opinion at UMass Lowell. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger-Drowns.
0: It is a mistake to look away from rank-and-file Republicans who are silent about Trump's open dog-whistle racism because they value the quid pro quo, his conservative judicial appointments and tax cuts for the rich. The slime for judges theory. No. Republicans really like what Trump is and what he does, according to Neil Buchanan, an economist and legal scholar at the University of Florida's Levin College of Law.
3: What Trump does more than regular Republicans have ever done in the past is um, uh, surface uh, bigotry, right? The Republicans are always pretty good at dog whistles and and, relative subtlety. I mean, it was pretty obvious what they were doing, but, you know, they're relatively subtle about their, their bigotry. And Trump just surfaces it, right? It's just right there. You can't miss it. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking to say, like, a why Trump and not Pence? Why Trump and not any of the other Republicans? Then, you know, what makes him different? He, he's just uh, 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 different than they are in, in that he um, makes people feel like it's okay to be bigoted. Um, and, you know, and then the, the Republicans in Congress are like, well, and if I go against him, I'll lose whatever chance I have at power. So, you know, it's essentially just raw power.
0: But we keep hearing, this is not who we are. But what right. you're saying is, this is who we are.
3: Yeah, it's either it's either who they are or they really don't understand. So I'm not saying that every single Republican is consciously bigoted. Um, I'm certainly not saying that none of them are. <laughs> um, but what I am saying is that, you know, for those who, who actually think that this is the deal. They don't understand the terms of the deal. They don't understand that there's a much better deal available to them.
0: You suggest that if someone shows you who they are, believe them.
3: Yeah, this is, this is, you know, I stole the quote from Maya Angelou. Now what I'm saying is with Trump, you don't even need to believe him the first time. You don't need to believe him the 10th time. He just keeps reminding you. So even if you miss the first hundred signals, Um, You know, it keeps coming right back to you and that his, you know, 40 percent of the overall population, overall voting uh, uh, population sticks with him after all this. You know, what they're saying each time is I like I refer to it as as being either racist or uh, racist adjacent. Um, You know, you're really uh, uh, you either are as racist as Trump is or his racism sure doesn't seem to bother them.
0: I think the expression in the 50s and early in the 50s and early 60s was fellow travelers.
3: Yes. Yeah. Right. That and that was used against um, the last. Right. So what you have here is a whole bunch of people who, you know, I I mean, if they're missing what Trump is really all about, they are really the most unobservant people ever. Right. You know, I mean, he 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 makes it unmissable um, what he is. Um, and you know, so, so yeah, I mean, fellow traveler, you know, racist adjacent, racist tolerant, <laughs> um, you know, all these, these terms get at it. Um, I would add by the way that the, one of the things that a colleague of mine called after she read my, my column and we were talking about it. And the interesting thing was, you know, I said, so it's either racism or the thirst for raw uh, power that explains Obedience to Trump's right, you know, so it's not the judges, it's not the economics, it's the, it's the, the bigotry and or, um, the, 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 the thirst for power. But, um, as we got to talking about it, we realized that I might have been too generous there because if you think about what Trump's doing on the power side, right? So, you know, think about the, the Republicans in the Senate or even out of the Senate, like Nikki Haley, right? You know, former governor of South Carolina, former ambassador to the U.N., um, you know, really trying to position herself for a post-Trump run at the presidency, right? Or Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton or, you know, even Paul Ryan, you know, former Speaker of the House, would probably emerge from under whatever rock he's hiding under right now. Um, And, you know, and they all they all have this idea that they're going to be president someday. Um, And the only way the only path they see getting there is um, to publicly support Trump, even if they you know, uh, I mean, you know, nobody thinks that Lindsey Graham actually likes Donald Trump, right? You know, or that Ted—I mean, Ted Cruz. But you know, for God's sake, you know, Trump uh, um, accused Ted Cruz's father of, you know, assassinating Kennedy and insulted Ted Cruz's wife. I mean, this is not a, uh, a match made in heaven. Um, but the idea is, you know, they, they grit their teeth because this is their path to power, right? But, um. What Trump is doing is not setting up a succession of um, uh, um, objectively selected Republican presidential candidates in the future, right? What he's doing is he's setting up a dictatorship because, you know, what's going to happen here is, you know, they're going to start, um, you know, uh, tightening the election laws, you know, uh, disenfranchising even more voters. And it's not like Trump is going to sit back and say, oh, OK, well, you know, I'm done in another four years. So you guys fight it out amongst yourselves. right?" You know, what's going to happen is he's going to say, well, look at Ivanka. You know, look at look at my kids. You know, like, I mean, you know, Kim Jong-un is, you know, the son and grandson of a, of a dictator. You know, so I kind of like that plan, thinks Trump. And so, you know, if Ted Cruz and these others are thinking that, you know, that this is their route to absolute power, you know they're going to find out um, that that's not how this is, this game is going to be played after 2020 if they, if if Trump stays in office. That, that, so so my theory was actually half wrong, <laughs> right? My my alternative theory, you know, which was, I, I mean, you know, they probably do all believe it. So in that sense, my theory was right. But in terms of what they're actually going to get, you know, I just do not see how Ted Cruz ends up in, uh, as president under any. Uh, scenario where Trump, um, uh, Trump stays in office, um, after, after this election. You know, this is going to be inside the Politburo kind of, of maneuvering. Um, and, you know, and it's not going to be like, oh, well, Ted Cruz has his base in evangelical voters and Nikki Haley will, you know, do something else and, you know, and then they'll have like a relatively competitive Republican primary season in 2024. Now, that that that's not where this is going, right? This this is this is people who, you know, to the extent that they're going to keep power, it will only be by continuing to sell their soul um, to the emerging autocrat, um, and you know, who ultimately isn't going to give them what they want because you know he's got other people in mind for you know to, to pass on the the, the crown to.
0: What, yeah, possibly would the does Trump and the Trumpistas have in mind to do with? Uh, the tens of thousands of Somali refugees that live in Minnesota, if they uh, weren't able to seize power? What do they have in mind to do with the millions of African-Americans? What do they have in mind to do with the millions of Latinos in the society? Uh, you can't expel them all. They're going to exterminate them. I mean, what, what are they thinking?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I hesitate to even guess because, you know, I mean, history has gives us examples of you know truly horrible paths that it could take but even you know the 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 mildest version of following trump's illogic to its 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 conclusion is um certainly disenfranchising all all the groups that you just described right even though they're american citizens even though you know they're over 18 all you know meet all the other requirements just you know make sure that they they never vote again um, you know, and so, and you know, there are all kinds of um, sneaky ways to do, not so sneaky ways to do that. Um, you know, so that's that's as a starting point, and that you know, and that's where I'm saying, you know, that that's, I think that's what the Ted Cruzes and and Tom Cottons of the world are thinking. Like, you know, it'll be great because we'll have our our intramural battle over who succeeds Trump, and then whoever emerges will surely win because. Will have you know basically disenfranchised the entire Democratic voting base, right? Um, but uh, um, but you know that's I mean th- th- as I say I don't I, I don't think they understand you know what's going on there, but you but you are certainly right that um, Trump and his you know his his fervent backers have always had a you know uh, an us versus them. There's just um, group after group after group that you just say okay you know. They don't count. They're, they're, they're not full citizens. They're, you know, they're lucky that we let them stay here.
0: Sounds like apartheid.
3: It does. It has a lot of um, a lot of historical antecedents and apartheid is certainly one of them.
0: Professor Neil Buchanan, holder of the, the James J. Freeland Eminent Scholar Chair in Taxation at the University of Florida's Levin College of Law. Thank you for talking with us.
3: Thanks very much.
0: Heading into this election, there are more than enough reasons to be concerned about voter suppression targeting non-whites. Whether it's voter purges, the closing of polling places, or stricter ID laws, the impact of these practices are all expected to have a disproportionate effect on non-white voters. Not to mention Trump's calling for poll watchers. But no matter what happens on election day, there is still another hurdle in making sure the next president reflects the will of a diverse nation. And that's the Electoral College. Sue Goodwin has more.
4: All voters are not created equal, in no small part because of the Electoral College. To understand why, it's helpful to take a refresher course in how this influential institution came to be in the first place.
5: The Electoral College is a product of slavery. It was created as a way of distributing political power across slave states and non-slave states. And the reality is, if millions of humans hadn't been enslaved in the United States in 1787, I don't think the Electoral College ever would have come to be in the first place.
4: That's Benjamin Waddell, Associate Professor of Sociology at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. He recently wrote a piece for the Globe Post titled, If Black Lives Matter, the Electoral College Must Go. He starts the piece by dispelling the myth that the Electoral College was created to balance power between rural states and urban states.
5: I always like to start off with the fact that 95% of Americans lived in rural locations in 1787 during the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. So as the forefathers were drafting what ends up becoming the Electoral College, the vast majority of this country lived in rural spaces. So the idea that the Electoral College was somehow created to balance more populous and less populous states just doesn't line up well with the facts. States were relatively balanced in terms of population. During that time period, if you counted all inhabitants. But in 1787, only white male landowning citizens were able to vote.
4: And at the time, about 36% of the South was comprised of enslaved people. Because of its considerable non voting population, the South would have had less clout under a popular vote system. But the Three Fifths Compromise, adopted in 1787, gave them an opening to change that.
5: The Three-Fifths Compromise, of course, was the agreement between the folks drafting the Electoral College at the convention in 1787, which allowed Southern states to count enslaved people as partial citizens for the purpose of gaining political representation in Congress.
4: And because the decision was made to assign Electoral College votes based on the number of senators and representatives each state had in Congress, it gave the South considerably more Electoral Votes despite the fact that large portions of their populations could not vote. Since that time, of course, a lot has changed. African Americans are full citizens and have the right to vote. Plus, from 1910 through 1970, about 6.5 million Black Southerners moved to other parts of the country in the Great Migration. But still to this day, the Electoral College favors rural, conservative, and white voters. To understand that, we turn to another point in history: the permanent apportionment Act of nineteen twenty nine which put a cap on representation in the House at four hundred and thirty five
5: The problem with that is that cap means that certain states have much more representation within Congress than other states and so for example, Wyoming, which has the smallest population, has one representative for roughly 563,000 citizens back in in 2010. But you have much more populous states like California, but they they don't have one representative for every 563,000. They have one representative for many, many more people, right? Because they have a large population, but there's a cap
4: in the Congress at 435, so you can only give out so many seats. And remember, representation in Congress translates directly to electoral votes. So with two senators and at least one representative, each state has a minimum of three electoral votes. That means less populated states, often largely white, carry more power vote for vote in the electoral college system. There's another factor which suppresses the impact of voters of color in the electoral college, as black people migrated out of the South, the largely white and largely conservative population in southern rural areas became even more concentrated.
5: If you have a situation in which people move out, that might have balanced the overall outcome of the election. But those states still have vastly favorable ratios in terms of the electoral college system. And so as minority voices move out of those states, you have a concentration of more conservative voices that are traditionally going to vote for the Republican Party. And so what happens, because of our electoral college system, if the state's popular vote goes for one candidate, they get all of those electoral college votes. And so a concentration of more conservative voices in the South and in the the Midwest as a result of the out-migration of minorities leads to an assurance that those states are lock-ins for the Republican
4: Party. Now, it's not just red states that get locked in, it's blue states as well. And because of that, most of the attention goes to the swing states. And here again, we see a bias against voters of color.
5: The average population is 87% white. Those states are ultimately the states that end up determining elections. It, It wouldn't matter if it weren't for the fact that minorities and white people in this country vote very, very differently. African-Americans usually vote between 88% and 96% for Democrats, and Latinos usually around 75%, 76% for, for Democrats. And so it's the fact that those states that end up determining our election in rural spaces are majority white and much more conservative that makes the Electoral College system today so unfair. And-
4: so we have to ask, at what cost is the Electoral College allowed to continue Of course, there is the fact that in the last five elections, the Electoral College has handed the presidency to two Republicans who lost the popular vote. But there is something just as important that Benjamin Waddell brings to our attention.
5: There's some really good research out there that actually looks at, you know, whether or not battleground states, you know, receive more attention from executive branches. So there's that very direct relationship between disaster relief, federal grants, infrastructure projects, education, healthcare investments, farm subsidies. When it comes down to it, there's, there's very clear evidence that demonstrates that, that um, the executive branch pays attention more to battleground states at the cost of non-battleground states.
4: Keep in mind, as established earlier, these battleground states are majority white. Now, the way
5: I think of this is, it goes back to this idea of no taxation without representation. So we shouldn't pay taxes if we're not getting represented, and we don't get represented in the same way as battleground states do. So if you were to move from Wyoming to California, your Electoral College vote, your 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 ability to influence the Electoral College system would reduce by about 66%. I think of that as a reduction of representation. You're losing the ability to bring your needs and your, your issues from your community to the highest level of political representation in the land. And as a result, the state loses access to the types of things that you need to, to live a fulfilling life, which is access to education and health care and meaningful employment.
4: And to take it to another level, Benjamin Waddell says it's not just U.S. citizens who experience this impact. As he points out, the Electoral College determines the most important leader in the world.
5: And so when it comes down to it, the bias within the Electoral College system is not only impacting people in the United States, it's impacting the well-being of people around the world. Whether or not there's U.S. AID investment, it impacts whether or not a government is pushing for a more democratic government or a more authoritative government. So in, in a very fundamental way, the Electoral College has very deep impacts for U.S. citizens as well as the other 7 billion people or so living around the world.
4: That's Benjamin Waddell, Associate Professor of Sociology at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. His article titled, If Black Lives Matter, the Electoral College Must Go, is posted at theglobepost.com. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. The Moral Monday movement, launched by the Poor
0: People's Campaign, led by the Reverends William Barber and Liz Theo Harris, plans to conduct in-person caravans in 10 states today to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's home in Kentucky to his office in Washington, and to dozens of other locations to protest what the Reverend Theo Harris describes as the sins of the Senate.
6: Well, uh, if we look at our sacred traditions, um, or even our constitutional values, uh, someone like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, woe to you who uh, legislate evil and deprive the poor of their rights. Um, there's a long history both in our sacred texts as well as in social justice movements from this nation's history of having to call out the inequity um, and, uh, and injustice uh, that those who are in power uh, and elected to power to serve and protect the people um, are uh, when, when they're not uh, doing what they were elected to do, um, they have to be called out. And so, Um, the Senate, um, and majority leader Mitch McConnell in particular have, uh, spent, uh, some time now really suppressing votes, um, trying to stack the court, uh, you know, um, making sure that we don't have, uh, a stimulus, a just stimulus, um, that could really lift, uh, the load of, of, of poverty and of, of misery and of hurt on top of this, uh, pandemic, um, you know it's well within the powers of the senate to to w- raise wages to expand healthcare um and yet uh we have none of that happening right now and so we as moral leaders as people that are impacted by um by injustice um who are organizing uh think that this is exactly what what sin is and that when when those who are are put in positions of power um who are supposed to be organizing society to meet the needs of everybody um, are not doing their job that, that they must be called out against.
0: Is that going to be a virtual event? Or are you going to have people in cars or people on foot at various locations?
6: So folks in um, 10 different States will be doing caravans, you know, social distancing, staying in their vehicles, um, you know, being very safe, but also being very loud, very clear, that um, that people all over this nation are hurting profoundly um, and that people who are impacted, uh, folks that are without jobs, without healthcare, without adequate food um, will not remain silent anymore. Um, and so again, in, in dozens of, of towns and cities and in 10 different states, there will be folks doing caravans um, at Mitch McConnell's offices at the Senate um, at the the you know their legislatures in their states, um, making sure that folks hear that this is not okay with the people and um, and that we will continue to organize and mobilize and that poor and low income people will also turn out to vote um, in this election um, uh, and make our voices heard that way as well.
0: Our listeners who might want to support this activity, how do they get involved?
6: Wonderful, so the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, were organized in more than 40 states across the country. And if people are interested in getting involved, you can text MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975 to join, or you can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org. If you're interested in getting involved in one of the um, caravans that's happening in your state, you can also find out that information on the website and in our social media and anybody in any state across the country can, can lo- sign on and log on on Monday at three thirty Eastern time to join a, a, a digital moral Monday calling out, uh, you know, McConnell and the Senate and all those in power right now. Um, the Supreme court, our, our, uh, office of the president, um, for the misery and mayhem that they're ca- causing in everybody's lives, and so um, again, you can log into our our, our Facebook page or our, our Twitter accounts, but then also a, a very good source of information is PoorPeople'sCampaign.org, and and we need folks to to get involved.
0: Have you been able to feel a reaction or response?
6: So we have been holding um, these online um, Digital Moral Monday marches. Um, uh, we've been having them for, for some months now. And more than a million people have joined throughout them. And we've been able to shut down the phone lines at McConnell's offices in D.C. and in all of the offices in Kentucky. We've been able to um, you know, inspire um, and empower folks in states uh across the country especially in Kentucky but but all over um in Washington DC in North Carolina in Maine to to come forward in in power and in action and and what we're seeing is that uh some of our our media um some of our uh elected officials some of our political candidates in the season are starting to talk about these issues in ways that they were not talking about them before millions of people joined um in raising our voices to sound the alarm against injustice and to say that it doesn't have to be this way. We can have uh, a just stimulus. Um, We can have the full Protection of Voting Rights Act. We can have uh, expanded health care and raised living wages. Uh, We can have quality infrastructure and quality education. Um, We have the resources. Our nation has the resources, but they're not spending them we, we, we need everyone to join up and to, to organize because we, we are seeing the fact that, that those in power are, are listening, um, and we just need to push.
0: This is uh, not an easy subject because people are conflicted about the health of the president. And while hardly anyone would like to see a person die of sickness, there are folks wondering— just how to respond to the president of the United States being in the hospital suffering from COVID-19. How do you respond? How do you say people respond to someone who has mocked other people with their illnesses and their disabilities and their infirmities? What is the decent response to how the president of the United States is now afflicted with a disease, which he suggested was a fake disease
6: yeah well as a more as a pastor as a anti-poverty organizer um, as a human being I mean I pray for the health and well-being of of everybody Um, uh, and and in order to pray for the health and well-being of everybody I know that it means that we must fight for the expansion of health care and we must call out Um, governmental officials who are, who, who have free governmental health insurance, but want to dismantle the you know, the ACA, um, we have to call out, uh, anybody that is not taking, uh, the wounds of people seriously. I mean, in, in, in Jeremiah, uh, you know, uh, uh, the prophet calls out, um, uh, you've treated the wounds of my people as if they're not serious. Um saying it'll be okay um, but things are not just okay and so so in our praying for the health and well-being of everybody uh, we also have to cry out that that we need real healing and we need healing for everybody and to, to heal everybody we need to heal a society that has made people sick um, and that uh, to do that it means you know again voting rights it means health care for all it means housing and it means truth and love and justice, um, not lies, um, not deception, not pitting people against each other, um, and surely not um, sowing more and more injustice uh, in already a, a difficult situation. And so, so you know, uh, every day we 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 need to pray for the health and well-being of all, um, and and to pray. That way it means you have to be in action and you have to be organizing and mobilizing and registering and educating people um for a movement. Um and a movement that is gonna vote this November um uh for anyone that, that uh stands in the way of justice and love and truth.
0: Reverend Liz Theo Harris of uh, Repairs of the Breach, the Moral Monday campaign. Thank you for talking with us.
6: Thank you so much.
0: Trump pivoted to a law-and-order election strategy earlier this year, an extension of a tough branding already seen in dealings with China. But as a new report establishes, Trump's trade actions with China and other nations have undermined American law and order.
1: Reporter Chris Banger Drowns has more. Tariff man Trump and and law-and-order Trump are not compatible identities for the president. His action on trade has harmed American security, at least in the economic sense. His
7: actions have harmed economic security, um, certainly. I mean, we, in our report, we give a number of examples of the decline in, in job growth in industrial states like Michigan and Ohio, um, and the fact that his tariffs, including tariffs on allies and friends like Canada and Europe, have drawn retaliatory actions, as they always do, and that has caused a decline in U.S. exports and a decline in U.S. jobs. Etc. so that in, in those issues of economic security, it's been harmful.
1: That's Sandra Pulaski, senior research scholar at Boston University's Global Economic Governance Initiative. She's a co-author of a new report from the Institute for Policy Studies titled How Trade Policy Failed U.S. Workers and How to Fix It. Pulaski argues that it's not just economic security Trump has violated. It's traditional national security as well.
7: It's one thing to treat a country as a competitor. It's an entirely different thing to treat them as an opponent or even as an enemy. When you begin to treat another country as an opponent or an enemy, it's bound to have an effect on the psychology of the people in that country, but also on your own people. And that's that's what we're seeing now. We're beginning to see mounting anti-China sentiment in the U.S. across the broad spectrum. And we're beginning to see mounting anti-U.S. sentiment in China across the broad spectrum. So I think that, His actions, which have been done, you know, in effect to satisfy what he considers to be his economic base, but also to please influential corporations and and sectors, in fact, are having negative repercussions on the overall security
1: of the United States. Pulaski says the objective political impact of Trump's trade actions should be negative, but that Trump's base could be distracted by concerns manufactured by the campaign. But even if Biden wins the election, Pulaski's report outlines why U.S. trade policy will have to be reformed. Core to this reform push are questions of democracy. Most trade deals, those negotiated by Trump and those before his ascent to power, restrict domestic policymaking.
7: For a number of years now, increasingly, U.S. trade policy making has been captured by corporate interests, by corporate lobbyists who persuade the U.S. trade negotiators to go after this or that advantage that will help their profitability. A lot of that has to do with what's called regulatory convergence. They get favorable regulation or deregulation, in many cases um, in the U.S., that will be advantageous to their profitability. And then they persuade U.S. trade negotiators to go and put deregulatory terms into trade agreements that prevent other countries from having higher regulations. So, for example, Europe has very strong regulations protecting food security and trying to protect the safety of the food supply when the U.S. talks about having a negotiation with with Europe. They want to be able to export um, genetically modified goods, for example, which the European Union doesn't permit. So the U.S. will negotiate with its trading partners to try to drive down regulatory standards in order to increase the markets for U.S. favored firms and sectors.
1: This kind of restriction is particularly relevant as we approach the election.
7: So now suppose we have a change of administration and the U.S. administration wants to institute Uh, much stronger environmental laws, much stronger labor protection laws, much stronger protection for food safety and security of the food supply chain. Suppose a foreign investor has invested in the U.S. in a sector which is now affected by these stronger pro-public regulations. Under the terms of most U.S. trade agreements, there is a clause that allows those investors to sue the government, in this case the U.S. government, for damages because of lost profits that they claim they could have reasonably expected. It's a uh, very undemocratic system, both both in the idea that trade negotiators should be able to lock in policies that have not been debated and agreed by the public through their own regulatory mechanisms. But then also allows for these private arbitrations where damages can be extracted from governments because they've tried to protect their public, protect their environment more
1: ambitiously. This ability of private corporations to sue sovereign governments for so-called lost profit is the result of what's called an Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS, mechanism. Trump's new NAFTA deal phases ISDS out between the US and Canada, but keeps the mechanism in force for Mexico.
7: It did narrow somewhat the scope, but it didn't eliminate ISDS. And one of the demands of people who want to introduce some real democracy uh, into the trade policymaking process insists that this should be eliminated wherever it occurs. And right now it is in almost all U.S. trade agreements. It's in almost all U.S. bilateral investment agreements with other countries. So there is a lot of work to be done to strip this out.
1: Pulaski was involved in some attempts to reform trade policy during her time in the Department of Labor under the Obama administration and in her role as Deputy Director General of the U.N.'s International Labor Organization. Much of her reform work centered around human and labor rights, but she stresses that domestic policy, rather than trade deals, should be the primary foundation for achieving those rights.
7: The, the primary domain for regulating that should be in domestic law, no question about that. And much of the harm that's been done to workers in the U.S. over the last 20, 30, 40 years has had to do with bad US policy, uh, the refusal and resistance of Republican administrations to raise the minimum wage, et cetera. Now that's something that Democratic administrations have been trying to do in in trade deals um, for a long time with with mixed results, I would have to say, but they have been putting labor clauses in trade agreements which require countries to respect the uh, basic labor rights, core labor rights as they're they're called, um, and to enforce labor laws, et cetera. These clauses have been gradually strengthened over the course of time. I was involved in some of that during the Obama administration.
1: The problems with trade policy stretch far beyond questions of democracy, and Pulaski's report details those problems. It also suggests three big changes to the trade-making process to ensure greater democracy and, ultimately, better results for U.S. workers. First, A return to the constitutionally-based congressional power in trade negotiations.
7: Congress needs to take back its constitutional responsibility. This will make it more accountable because people in every district of every congressman in the country will be watching what's happening and so it will be more democratic, more representative. Number one, Congress involvement.
1: Pulaski also calls for greater transparency.
7: The proposals that the U.S. makes to another country, that the U.S. receives from another country, are classified, which means that it is illegal to share that information so that the deal goes on behind closed doors, and it isn't until this final complex package is presented on a take-it-or-leave-it basis that all the details are known. So end the secrecy. All the proposals that are exchanged should be in the public domain.
1: Finally, Pulaski's report calls for a robust, inclusive advisory system for the public to have a say in trade negotiations.
7: Right now, there is an advisory system, but it's totally dominated by multilateral corporations and their lobbyists. So demolish that advisory system and establish a new one, which is much more representative of the perspectives of the public and the interests of the public.
1: That's Sandra Pulaski, Senior Research Scholar at Boston University's Global Economic Governance Initiative. You can read the report, How Trade Policy Failed U.S. Workers, and How to Fix It, by visiting ips-dc.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger Drowns.
0: In an interview with Louisville TV station WDRB last week, Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron admitted that his office never presented any charges against two of the officers involved in Brianna Taylor's death, after initially telling reporters that the grand jury had made the decisions themselves. Cameron lied to reporters five times, saying that the grand jury made the decision to not indict the officers in the case when, in fact, he never presented such an option to the grand jury. After a member of that panel sued, the recordings of those proceedings have now been released. Roger Fairfax is a professor at the George Washington University School of Law. He says that it's a rare occurrence when the secrets of a grand jury are released to the public.
8: Well, you know, getting the recordings of a a grand jury proceeding is something that's very rare. Um, and, uh, you know, we've had, uh, you know, many cases where grand juries have uh, failed to indict um, in these uh, cases where uh, police officers are accused of unjustifiably um, killing um, uh, African Americans, you know, the Ferguson grand jury that failed to uh, indict. Darren Wilson for killing Michael Brown, the Ohio grand jury that declined to indict Tim Loman for killing Samir Rice, and then also the Staten Island grand jury that failed to indict Daniel Pantaleo for killing Eric Garner. Um, but typically, we don't get access to those um, transcripts and recordings. So to get the uh, transcripts and to have access um, to the recordings in um, this particular case is uh, is quite rare and uh, provides an opportunity to really understand what went on behind closed doors in that grand jury.
0: So there's a standing joke I've heard that a district attorney can get an indictment from a grand jury of a ham sandwich if he wants. So <laughs> that's right. So is this an indicative of the fact that? In this case, Attorney General Cameron had his thumb on the scale in the favor of the police.
8: Well, you know, prosecutors have a uh, an outsized role in grand jury proceedings. Uh, prosecutors decide what evidence the grand jurors uh, get to see. They decide who testifies before the grand jury. In some jurisdictions, they decide which questions. Are asked of those uh, of those witnesses, and then ultimately, in most uh, cases, prosecutors are the ones recommending the charges that the grand jury should consider. So, because the prosecutor has so much influence over the process, um, the the prosecutor is in a position, um, if if that prosecutor so chooses, to to engineer or steer uh, an outcome given that influence that a prosecutor has in the grand jury, um, if they wanted the other, um, outcome, uh, to be the case, uh, and they, they didn't want the grand jury, you know, for instance, to, uh, return certain charges, um, they could use their influence to, um, to try to bring about that result, uh, as well. Um, and you know, that I think is, is the concern that many people have, um, in these sorts of cases because prosecutors as as you can imagine work very closely with police officers right um you know police officers are their witnesses in cases they you know gather evidence um and they work together um and and in many cases you know to pursue justice for you know victims of criminal offenses right and so i mean they, they naturally have an affinity um for each other which is why in many cases where police officers in a jurisdiction are accused of, um, serious misconduct, people call for independent prosecutors to be brought in. Um, you know, prosecutors who may not have worked directly with those particular, uh, law enforcement officers so that you could perhaps have a more unbiased uh, approach taken. And in this case, um, in the Breonna Taylor case, um, you know, the attorney general, you know, as you, as you pointed out, is not um, the local prosecutor, um, but is an elected you know, prosecutor, the top prosecutor in the state. And he chose um, to handle uh, this case. But um, regardless of whether you're a local prosecutor or not, you can still um, uh, be uh, subject to, you know, uh, influences or pressures um, from the outside that might, um, you know, work toward your, um, uh, making, uh, decisions, uh, with, uh, with considerations other than the evidence in the case, uh, in mind. And so that's always a concern. Anytime, uh, you have prosecution like this. You write that there's a,
0: the grand jury's role in the prosecution of unjustified police killings. I mean, that's almost an oxymoron because, are there ever any unjustified police killings?
8: Well, so that, that relates, and that's you know a, a great question, and, and it relates to another feature of uh, these grand jury proceedings, and, and something that's an issue in this particular case. Um, and that is uh, what the law says uh, about uh, a, uh, a police officer's uh, ability or authority to use deadly force. And, you know, there have been a series of of cases from the Supreme Court um, that uh, illuminate the questions around the use of force and the use of uh, deadly uh, force um, over the years. And, you know, grand jurors are, are generally lay people, right, without legal training. And the only lawyer there to advise them is, in fact, the prosecutor standing in front of them. So this prosecutor is both an advocate in the case uh, and is also the legal advisor to the grand jurors. And so if you really want to get a sense for whether the grand jury has been um, given the information for both the evidence and then also um, uh, the law that um, uh, should be applied to that evidence um, uh, such that they can reach a sound um, uh, result in the case, you, you really wanna know how that prosecutor instructed the grand jurors on the law of things like use of force and excessive force um, and justification and self-defense. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you don't have access to that, you really are not in a position to assess whether the uh, grand jury process uh, was a fair process. Um, and then as we saw, the only charges uh, that were approved by the grand jury um, and and presumably recommended by the prosecutor here were wanton endangerment charges um, that had to do with shots that um, uh, hit uh, a neighboring apartment, but but no charges in connection um, with the killing of 26 year old Brianna Taylor in her own home.
0: You said that it's rare that the transcripts or recordings of the grand jury proceedings are, released to the public, it seems even rarer that a juror, a grand juror would sue the district attorney or the attorney general in this case because of what is it? Did he suspect that there was something done wrong in this case? I mean, that seems even more rare that a a member of the grand jury would break ranks and say, we need to hear more.
8: Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it is. It's exceedingly rare for something like that to happen. Now, now, obviously, we, we may not, um, you know, get word of every time a, a grand juror files, you know, such a motion. But, but I think you know most people who follow um, uh, this area agree that it's extraordinary for a grand juror to um, to do that. So when when this motion was filed, I mean, I think everyone you know, really paid attention and, and, you know, we'll see what might come of this um, and whether the the grand jurors in this case will, would ultimately be uh, free to, um, to convey their um, perspective on what happened behind the closed doors of the grand uh, jury. But, but yes, you're right. It is, it is very rare for that to take place.
0: Roger Fairfax professor of law at George Washington university law school. Thank you. Thank you for talking with us.
8: Absolutely. It's been an honor to be on your show, and um, I enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Manger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askiya Muhammad. Please stay safe, mask up, and thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.